This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Good evening and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell and I'll be with you until 7 o'clock. It's the 1st of June already and what a glorious evening it is and what a glorious spell of weather. I hope you've been enjoying it wherever you're listening this evening to KCLR throughout the world, even online or on the KCLR app. The prolonged spell of sunshine has put a pep in the step of many people and later in the programme we'll be talking about the state of consumer confidence. How are people feeling? Is sunshine good for business? We'll be talking to economist Austin Hughes. You've heard of blended working, the mixture between working from home and working in an office. Later, we'll be talking about the blended workforce, a mixture between full and part-time staff, as well as contractors, freelancers and project workers. And as I mentioned, it's the June Bank Holiday Weekend. And once again, some of the world's finest comedians take the stage in Kilkenny. Catlaff's founder Richard Cook will be in studio to talk about the business of comedy festivals and what he's learned over almost 30 years of producing producing some of the best festivals around. But first, joining me in the studio, hot from Kilkenny's latest traffic developments, is communications consultant and former Irish independent business editor Maeve Deneen. Maeve, you're very welcome to the studio. If I can just turn on your correct microphone, it doesn't seem to be working somehow or other. Uh, Oh, it is. I just can't see the red light. I know I'm here. I'm definitely here, John. Great to be back. Great to be in with you. It's a beautiful evening out there, although the traffic uh, is a little testy. I think uh, it is. The the roadworks on the bridge are starting to to really ramp up. I think, and you can see it at the busy busy time. What did they say? A butterfly uh, flutters its wings and it's felt around the world. And equally, it is with traffic everywhere. Really, isn't it? For sure, definitely. Yeah, like, but what about air traffic? Um, yeah, that's a, a big story, isn't it? And, and people, you know, the good weather, a lot of people flying out of the country, but dark clouds on the horizon. Well, I guess this is always the time of year that uh, the strikes start occurring within the airline industry and for obvious reasons, because it's the highest impact. So if you are going to strike, this is the time you're going to strike. But Ryanair have come out against it. They're trying, I suppose, to head it off, really, as they come into their busy period. Because last year, as we all remember, there was issues with queuing at the airports and there was issues with flights being cancelled. So this year, the new kind of issue seems to be around the French air traffic controllers. So the French air, uh, air traffic controllers have uh, have taken strike action and they're well entitled to do it. Uh, 57 times though. 57? 57 times Did the, the French in, uh, invent striking, do you well, know? Well, I'd they say they lean into it heavily. I'd say they enjoy it. They're, they're, you know, there is a culture, obviously, of protesting in, uh, in France and they do have a piece kind of written into their constitution and kind of like the right to do nothing. So they have a very different culture to us um, and they definitely strike around this time of the year. The, the air traffic controllers or the baggage handlers or uh, the flight the flight attendants in general. But the, the bigger issue with the air traffic controllers isn't so much people going to France, which uh, there are a lot of that go out of Ireland into France, but you can't fly over French airspace if 
the uh, if the traffic air controllers are striking. So it's affecting an enormous number of flights. It will affect your flights going to Spain. It will affect like flights going to Poland. So it's going to affect more than just the French flights. Now this happened a few weeks ago, and you'll remember that uh, Michael O'Leary and Ryanair they came out and they cancelled about two hundred flights. He obviously is heading this off and doesn't want it to happen again. He's after going with a petition of over a million signatures to because they've had it all over the website. They've had it all. Over. Yes, mm. that it is. There is a tendency for this to happen. So he's gone to the European uh, Aviation Regulation Authority and saying, look, we have to do something about this. We respect their right to protest, but this isn't in convention with their union piece, effectively, where they're coming back and they're saying, no, it actually is. But it's clearly a concern if he's ramping it up. You know, there's no better man for PR than Michael O'Leary. And if he's ramping it up and trying to head it off, I think this is something that we could hear a lot about over the summer and cause an awful lot of distress. Because it's difficult that if a flight is cancelled, that flights are operating at such capacity that people can't be bumped onto other flights. This is it. And you know, if you're working 50 weeks of the year, you get your two weeks holidays and you're looking forward to this all year. And even if they say, oh, you're only delayed by a day or two, but a day or two is a lot if you're only taking one week's holidays and you've paid a lot of money for these holidays and you want to go. So it's a very stressful time if you're at the airport and your flight is cancelled. It it used to be regarded as glamorous air travel, but it's getting tougher and tougher and tougher. And of course, we've heard a lot over the last while of the um, you know, the parking situation. The parking situation and the queue parks and the parking going into uh, Dublin Airport, that seemed to come out of nowhere. It was There was no kind of sense of, oh, it's ramping up or it's filling up or we're under pressure. It was just essentially, we're full. Yeah. That's it. So now you're left with a situation that many people, if you're like myself, you're not particularly organised and about a week before you go on holidays, you go, oh God, I better book a car parking spot. There is no car parking spots to be got around Dublin Airport now. Now there is talk of opening up other areas out there. But it's it stuck, I think, with the competition authority stuck or something. with the competition authority, no better crew. Um, it's stuck with the, the competition authority if they open it up. But I mean, I don't know what they're going to do because but it's not like you can park, I mean, you can call on friends and park, but then you have, you know, you park someplace near Dublin airport you come off you hop into a taxi and the first thing the taxi driver will say is where you're going and if you're not going the other side of the city you hear about it until you go down to Drumgondra or down to Whitehall or something in Dublin so it's uh, it, you know, it's, you, know, you look at the sunny weather here you go God if you could get this weather all the time you'd never go anywhere Local Kilkenny Company Kavanagh's coaches though now a very viable option for people you know who want to get to Dublin airport who can't park up there because they run a really comprehensive service A really good service and like they and they go from like three o'clock in the morning onwards. So you'd easily make a seven o'clock flight, which is a lot of these flights. Like they, I know that from the new park they run from about three o'clock in the morning. Same with Paulstown stop. It's it's a very very viable option. And I suppose when you're coming back out of it and uh, coming down that tiredness factor, that stress factor that you can get into the bus and just get down. There's a safety piece. So there. Uh, an opportunity there for people to reevaluate their holiday plans and think I, I of a think good so. local. I I, I well I, I think an opportunity in one sense and a necessity in another. If there's yeah. no place to park, there's no place to park. Now, we'll be talking later in the programme about consumer confidence. One of the things that's been a real drag on consumer confidence is inflation. Tell us some good news, or do you have any good well, news? Because it all feeds into interest rate hikes, which all that stuff, which weighs down on 
business activity. Oh, for sure. I think there was good news for about an hour today. So what happened was the EU came out with their inflation figures and the good news was for the month of May, inflation had dropped. So it went down to 6%. And for that hour in between, there was a little piece of commentary going, oh, you know, this is great. The interest, they might be revisiting the interest rate, rate hike in July. This seems to be working, what we're putting in place. But about an hour later, the ECB president, um, Christine Lagarde, got up and gave a speech and effectively said, no, we still have some road to cover. We still have a good bit to go. So like, more their interest rates. Their target is 2%. Mm. Like, uh, now, 2%? 2%. 2% is the target Inflation. For inflation. Like, and it's that, at about what? Eight or nine? At, it's at eight, well, it's at six in Europe right. at the moment, but like here we're at about eight or nine. And then obviously you have the pockets like food inflation could be anything up about 15, 10 or, 10 or 14, 10, 15, Yeah, 10 to 15. Yeah. So uh, what's after bringing it down? A P, like it's funny the things that bring inflation down, say Europe wise. So what has brought it down in Europe is travel cards in Germany that uh, across Germany you could get an annual travel card for 50 euro. So that's that, moved. That's actually the moved of- the dollar. Wow. Um, but then in saying that there's pockets, you know, there, the, the price pressure has come down um, a, in certain areas around fuel, obviously. And if the fuel, if firms can say, oh, we're paying extra for fuel, so we have to ramp up the prices, that give, doesn't give them as much wriggle room. But food prices still, they're not cooling as much. And I guess the other part that people would be thinking, if it is going down and going in the right direction, you know, we always see it, the interest rates go up in half percents, but they come down in a quarter. But they might actually look in the July one at a quarter percentage right. point rather than half. But we've a lot, I, I mean, I personally feel that we won't see 2% for years. That no, that it doesn't feel like And it, that yeah. they'll have to revisit and reimagine yeah, yeah. how they look at it. But they, they're, they're, um, their comments are parsed so much and analysed so much that they're, they have to be very kind of... They have to, and, and, you know, if you talk to people who might have lived in Argentina during times of hyperinflation or pieces like, we don't want hyperinflation, no, you know. Like, we, we, we all know what they're at. We, we get the squeeze and we feel the squeeze, but you don't want to go down the road of hyperinflation. Yeah. Finally, um, a lot of headlines again. We've been talking about it on this program over the weeks, but artificial intelligence, the concern reaching fever pitch, if that's not overboiling it, is it? Well, there is. I mean, I, I suppose you should always be concerned when the founders and the inventors of a product warn against it. You, you do feel <laughs> that if the person who made it and is making money from it warns against it, there's something up. So, uh, And I was though, watching CNBC and you had all these people on saying it's a really good investment and pile your money into AI and there's loads of space so it's a kind of a tension between the business growth and the responsible use of it. It is the responsible because there's no doubt it is. I mean if you're looking at AI for healthcare diagnostics for uh, looking at diseases or um, you know, zoning in on different areas that's an incredibly positive uh, move but the concern really I guess is that the, the so-called godfathers of AI the people who invented this have come out and they've come together but funnily enough now the guy from Facebook hasn't come out and written, written this letter but the people mm. from Google and OpenAI, which would be the main uh, AI, uh, I suppose, business and uh, front runner in all of this Elon Musk's piece, they've come out and they just said they're very concerned about that. And of course, the Guardi uh, just yesterday, I think, released some figures about the amount of businesses that are victim of crime. And this is just on texts and emails, not to mention AI has a 
And this is what they're saying. They're saying your privacy issues is a huge issue, that this is one of the concerns and how it's going to be used, that there is privacy issues, there is, uh, I suppose, the you know, where fact is stranger than uh, fiction is, where the computers start having a mind of their own. Fake photos, and we've seen fake photos winning photography uh, And we we saw recently, uh, only in the Irish Times, where there was an AI-generated article that people write, like, for the likes of myself, they come out and they say, oh, this will end, end you all, you know, end all businesses. The difference, I guess, with this AI revolution and other revolutions, you know, when you look back in industrial revolutions, it was always, you know, like say, when the milking machine was invented, it helped people to stop the labour, the, 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 it helped people to stop having to milk cows by hand and it was always very useful in this one and it was always, I guess, the, the more manual works that it took, uh, t- took over, where in this case there is a sense that actually it will be the mid-level jobs, the mid-tier jobs, the lawyers, the uh, people who write, people who work in different uh, industries, that that the creators, that the creative industry will be hit a lot with this. Well, worrying uh, times, but opportunities there as well, as we were saying earlier on, but Maeve, Thanks a million for making it into the studio through the through the LA like traffic of uh, Kilkenny on this sunny Thursday evening. Uh, Maeve Deneen, thanks for joining us on the bottom line. We're going to take a break and we're going to be back and we're going to be talking about project work. KCLR, the bottom line with John Purcell. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. KCLR indeed, it's just coming up to 23 minutes after 6 o'clock. John Purcell with you on the bottom line, the programme for and about business. We're here until 7 o'clock on this lovely sunny Tuesday evening. Now, according to a news release that we received in here during the week, the coming of age of blended workforces has arrived. We've heard about the blended working practices, which uh, sees some people working at home, while uh, for some of the days during the week, and then working in the office. A blended workforce is a mixture of full and part-time staff as well as contractors, freelancers and so on. This uh, survey I mentioned is a cooperative partnership between Trinity Business School and Contracting Plus and I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Jimmy Sheen who's the Managing Director of Contracting Plus. Good evening, Jimmy. Evening, John. How are you? Good. Now explain to me blended workforces. Uh, very simple, in, it's in the name, John, in that the workforce is made up of a number of different types of workers. So you'll have employees who everyone will be familiar with, but you also have uh, independent contractors or project workers, which is what this research focuses on. And you can also have, you know, part-time workers or you can have seasonal workers, depending on what industry you're in. Yeah, and now, I, I've often seen... The, workforce. Sorry for interrupting you. I've seen um, the government, uh, a lot of the push seems to be coming from the government to get everybody into the employed model, you know, because you hear about the gig economy and low mm-hmm. pay and all that sort of stuff. How uh, is the sector that you're advocating for different from that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So if you think about uh, skills and experience, people who are essentially self-employed will either be on the, the lower end of the scale, such as, let's take, for example, the Uber drivers or the Deliveroo uh, guys and girls. What we're talking about here are high-skilled people, highly educated people. In fact, of the of the people surveyed in this report, 95% of them had uh, third-level education or higher. And of those, more than half had either a master's degree or higher. And I think what you see, to go to your question in terms of what the government are doing, they're trying to protect the lower-end, low-skilled, low-paid 
vulnerable end of the workforce, which is the right thing to do. As a society, we absolutely should be doing that. But I think in their drive to do that, they're, they're putting in artificial hurdles for these higher-end contractors to operate. And if you think about the people who use these higher-end contractors, they tend to be the bigger multinationals and the bigger indigenous companies. And what those companies are ultimately doing is growing and driving net job, excuse me, net job creation. They're driving extra tax, tax revenue as they grow their own business. So they're a huge part of Ireland Inc., and what we don't want to do is see policy implemented which, in protecting one end of the scale, has a detrimental effect at the other end of the scale. So you're looking for them to change. What kind of changes are you looking for to protect this high-end uh, aspect of the blended workforce? I think it's just recognition, John, that they, they are a very normal part of the workforce. I mean, if you think, let me give you an example of, let's say, a technology individual, technology expert. A company might say, KCLO might want to develop an app. And they might uh, say, well, we're going to need to have a really high-skilled person to do this. We might need that person for 12 or 18 months. But once your app is developed, you don't need the high-skilled person anymore. You might, you might actually end up creating a job for um, a, a lower-skilled person to maintain that app. But I will then, having developed that app, move on to the next, to the next uh, project uh, or the next client. And, and I think what we need to recognize is those type of project workers are very normal in the economy. Hmm. Now, uh, we often hear about, you know, you mentioned Uber drivers and so on, who are only actually getting paid when they're working. Um, what For the type of assignment or project you're talking about, what kind of state of mind does somebody need to, you know, because people, when they've grown up for a long time, we're told, get yourself a good permanent and pensionable job. The whole uh, project yeah. worker, freelancer and all that, it's a long way from a permanent and pensionable job. What kind of person do you need to be? You do need to be a person of resilience, but you also need to have an element of expertise. Typically, people before they start contracting have about 10 years expertise, and the average age is 49. It's not for everyone. Uh, you know, there's no sick pay. You have to look after your own pension, but there are much higher earnings. In fact, when, when the researchers looked at the earnings of the average contractor versus an employee, there was up to 70% increase being being a contractor. But in the other area of earnings, John, I think for a second, if I could just focus on on, on female contractors... If gender pay gap is a massive part uh, of of the discussion and diversity inclusion is a massive part of the discussion today. And if we look at the statistics um, by the CSO, the gender pay gap in Ireland is 22%. When you look at the contracting sector and the independent professional sector alone, that drops to 10%. But let me go one step further. If you look at the 30 to 39-year-old females, they actually earn 16% more than their male counterparts. And then the 40 to 49-year-olds, the gap is only 40, sorry, 4%. Mm-hmm. So contracting and freelancing, if you're a skilled professional female um, and, and you take a career break for whatever reason, maybe returning to the workforce as a contractor will allow you walk back in after, say, a 10-year break on rates that are near enough on par with male counterparts who have been in the workforce the whole time. Yeah, now we talked about the changes that need to be uh, made about how the government regards this sector. What kind of changes do you think employers and people running businesses need to have to take full advantage of this uh, sector of the workforce or this opportunity as you would see it? I think it comes back to government, John. Um, One of the reasons uh, maybe companies are slow to take on uh, contractors or independent workers or freelancers or whatever term you want to call them, is the perceived fear of tax bills down the road uh, because we we see the message again from government being 
you know, John is an employee. He wasn't a, he wasn't actually a contractor. So you're trying to recognize the fact that, well, if John is coming in every day and he's answering the phone and he's opening posts and he's making tea and he's sweeping the floor, then yes, he, he is an employee. But if John is coming in, go back to the, the example of develop, developing an app and doing something that's very high skilled for a very short period of time, once that project is finished, it doesn't matter how long you were in that company for, whether it was a six-month project or a 24-month project. What's what's key here is we can actually ring fence that and say you were only there for that project, mm. and as such, you, you you should have been entitled to operate as an independent contractor. How big do you estimate the independent contractor sector is? How many people are working in it, and you know roughly what would be the value to the economy? Unfortunately, there's no official figures around that. But if we took a stab, uh, you know, at if we say the the self-employed sector of Ireland. Uh, is about 330,000 people. Um, And then probably around 20% of those might be that professional sector. But it's not just those, you know, somewhere between 50 and 60,000 people. What it actually is, it's all the companies, it's all the jobs that they facilitate. So if you think of, I won't, won't name anyone, but think of any multinational company based in Dublin or Kildare or the regions, Uh, And all the employment jobs they're creating are off the back of projects, implementation projects in maybe developing a new line of drug, maybe developing a new chip, maybe developing a new piece of software. And all of those things now need maintenance people, sales people, business development people. So what and and research has shown that if if companies use at least 11 percent, if 11 percent of their blended workforce are made up of independent professionals, those companies will create more jobs in the long run for the economy. They will generate more tax income for the economy and they will um, return a bigger uh, bigger uh, return for shareholders. In the well, an interesting, uh, an interesting stat to end on and a very interesting area. Jimmy Sheen, Managing Director of Contracting Plus. Thanks for joining us on the bottom line Thank this you, evening. We'll be uh, continuing the programme. We're going to be talking to Austin Hughes about consumer confidence. Up, down or static? Stay tuned and find out. KCLR, The Bottom Line, with John Purcell. Carlo Kilkenny, KCLR. I'm John Purcell. This is The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business. We're here until 7 o'clock. Now, consumer confidence is an important barometer influencing business activity. And since 1996, uh, data has been gathered for a consumer index. And throughout, it has been analysed and parsed by economist Austin Hughes since 2022. The index has been a partnership between the Irish League of Credit Unions and Core Research. They've just released their latest figures and before we came on air, I caught up with Austin Hughes to talk about the latest index. I started by asking him to tell us what the report mainly said. Well, it says that sentiment improved in May. Consumers were probably a little bit less nervous about the economic outlook and as a result, sentiment is at its best level in 14 months. But that's not saying that consumers feel the world is all wonderful. The reality is consumer sentiment, even after the improvement in May, is still relatively subdued. To give you a sense of that, you know, the index reading is 62.4, and the average for the survey, which goes back 27 years, is 86.5. So Irish consumers may feel it's not as bad as it was for the last few months, but they still feel things are fairly tough. Can you tell us why consumer confidence is actually worth tracking and why it's important to business? 
Well, people argue about why you should measure uh, consumer sentiment. Way back, the economist Keynes talked about uh, the importance of animal spirits, that it wasn't only if people were able to spend, but it's if they were willing to spend that they would. Uh, and in that regard, uh, I, I think there is an important sense where if consumers are fearful, they tend to pull in their horns in terms of spending. Uh, and if they're confident, they tend to spend a little bit more freely. So if you look at the track record of the sentiment survey here over the last, you know, nearly 30 years and over similar surveys, they tend to correlate well with household spending. And in the case of the Irish index, they also tend to to correlate reasonably well with employment uh, and uh, with house prices. So they give you a fairly indication of an economy where things are either getting better or worse. And as I say, the May sentiment survey is saying things are getting a little bit better in Ireland, but they're still quite difficult for many households. Just on the point about, you know, how it feeds into behaviour and, you know, people may not spend even though they have the money. Would, Would an instance of that have been back during the banking crisis when saving levels were actually at stratospheric levels. People had money, but they were so concerned about the future and didn't have any confidence they weren't spending it. Well, the low point of the survey over the 27 years was in 2009, where consumers, um, you know, really feared that, that the Irish economy was coming apart at the seams. And it you know, to many, it certainly was. Uh, the more recent low point was in September of last year. That was a 14-year low. And that's at a time when people were warning about how we would have, you know, really difficult winter with energy and food bills likely to rise very sharply. So in those circumstances, consumers got a little bit more nervous. And it's very true that they they tend to pull back their spending. So what we've had, you know, in the official central statistics office measures, quite weak consumer spending through the tail end of last year. Uh, And that's, again, you know, when we talk about consumers and their behavior, we talk about saving for a rainy day. But what we find when you look at the data is it's when the rain is falling down that consumers save much a lot. So they did in the financial crisis and they did through much of last year because they were nervous about the impact of war in Ukraine and runaway sort of energy and grocery bills. Uh, Now we're on the up, as you say, but still fairly relatively subdued. What was the most recent high and what caused consumer confidence to go down? I'd have a guess that it was the war in Ukraine. Yeah, uh, well, as I say, the the May reading that we've just had is the best in 14 months. Uh, And before that, we had gotten uh, to a high. But again, consumers were nervous uh, because of Brexit. So you've had sort of, you know, these local sort of peaks and troughs because the world for the last, you know, five, six, maybe ten years has just seen one storm after another, be it, you know, the financial crisis, the euro area crisis, Brexit, COVID, war in Ukraine. You know, there has been something, you know, really worrying consumers and a source of concern to the economy coming down the tracks more or less all the time.
That's true. When when you mention it like that, uh, yeah, there was Brexit. Uh, we've had a rough old time and COVID, of course, as well, which was another uh, shock. Can you tell me what uh, real world effects you'd expect from um, improving consumer sentiment, albeit, you know, still fairly subdued? Well, what we seem to be picking up in sentiment is the improvement in the economy. And we've seen that in the latest unemployment numbers that, you know, point towards an all-time low in the unemployment rate around 3.8%. We see it in sort of reports of improved summer spending plans, you know, with, with suggestions of bumper holiday spends and that in spite of the cost of living crisis. I think the message from the sentiment survey is that we're not going to see a consumer boom, but maybe some of the sort of constraints on spending are easing for some, but not for all households, because, again, many households are still struggling just to put bread on the table. Mm, and interesting in a historical context, because often I would imagine over the years that the survey has been done, um, sentiment would have dipped when the government and public finances were in the pits, really, I suppose. And it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, Ireland Inc. seems to be doing so well, buoyant tax revenues and so on. And that doesn't, or does that feed into consumer confidence at all? I think one of the elements in the May improvement is actually the reports that came out during the survey period, you know, that the economy was set to do well. So the European Commission, the IMF, the Department of Finance, all upgrading economic forecasts. And probably equally importantly, uh, reports that the public finances were set to be in very large surpluses for the next four or five years. One of the interesting aspects in that regard is that consumer sentiment in Ireland improved quite significantly in May. uh, And at the same time, consumer sentiment in the U.S., deteriorated. And one of the drivers of the weaker sentiment in the U.S. was wrangles around what economists call the debt ceiling, worries that the government might go into default on that. So there were worries about the public finances in the U.S. and in Ireland a stronger sense that the public finances were healthy. And by extension, I think, you know, the sense that consumers are getting that the government has plenty of money also fed into a view that, well, perhaps this means that we're going to see a few bob more in the next budget. Uh, the survey was completed just before the Fine Gael suggestions of a, a tax cut of a thousand euro per person. But I think already in terms of the sentiment survey, consumers were picking up, well, the government has lots of money. The likelihood is we will see some of it. And I think there's a good case for that because so many households are still struggling with food prices rising sharply. And while energy costs have increased, fallen marginally, energy bills are still a problem for many. Yeah, we've had, of course, a cost of living crisis, as you refer to there. Where do people think we're at in that? Well, we had a special question in the May sentiment survey that asked whether people felt the worst was over. Uh, And opinion is divided. The majority view is that there's still tough times to come. So 60% say we're not past the worst 
And I think within that 60% are, you know, quite a lot of households who are struggling still with grocery bills, with filling the car, with feeding the kids, sending them off to school, and maybe thinking about a summer holiday. So there are, you know, I, I think... The majority view would be that uh, things are still quite tough. And of, and, of course, remember, you know, that although inflation is easing back, it means prices are rising at a slightly slower rate. It doesn't mean that prices are falling. Against that, 22% thought that uh, the worst of the crisis was over. Now, for some of these, it could have been because they got a job, because jobs are buoyant in the Irish economy and if you didn't have a job last year and you have a job now your standard of living is definitely improving. Similarly some may have gotten pay increases or promotions that would make them feel better and it may well be that other consumers are buying into the view that yeah maybe the worst is over, oil prices are coming down and maybe food prices will fall in the months ahead. Now uh, you and I have discussed in the past what you termed the uh, lipstick index which is a kind of a very uh, simple way of understanding the whole thing I want to ask you is there a sunshine index does the good weather we're having lead people to feel more com- feel more confident about the economy their spending their financial outlook uh, I don't think there's any question but people feel a little bit better in weather like we're having at the moment <laughs> unfortunately what's seldom is wonderful and we've tried in the past to actually correlate you know in a statistical way weather conditions with sentiment (laughs) we don't really have enough evidence of really sunny weather that would actually suggest oh yeah we can pick up this relationship but you know I, i think while it may not be apparent in the the survey, I don't think there's any doubt that people feel more comfortable and more confident. Uh, you know, for one, kind of the heating bills go down. Uh, it also probably means people are more inclined to walk maybe than, than drive, uh, you know, in terms of leisure. Uh, and people just feel better out and about. So I think all those elements mean that confidence does improve. Uh, and you see it in terms of the, the advertising as well that, you know, companies are trying to get you to to buy things for the garden or think about uh, the summer holiday that lies ahead or even the barbecue in the back. And I suppose people would have a sense of confidence to go, yes, well, I will invest in a summer wardrobe or a few pairs of shorts or whatever it is when they look at the end of May and it's already like what many would associate like with July. That's undoubtedly the case, you know, so um, you will see people spending that little bit more to to be, you know, uh, weather appropriate in in their dress, even if it just means taking the socks off and leaving the sandals. Wow, that's Austin Hughes giving us a, a hint of his uh, his uh, sartorial uh, vibe uh, in the current weather. Um, but very interesting chat with him about the state of consumer confidence. It is the June Bank holiday weekend. The sun is splitting the stones and I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Richard Cook, the man behind the Catlaughs Comedy Festival. Richard, uh, it's as is as much part of bringing on good weather for the June Bank holiday weekend as the leaving cert nearly at this stage. How long is Catlaughs? laughs on the road it's 29 years wow 
That so, flew. Where did that go? That's a lot of jokes. It's, it's a lot of jokes, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of bad jokes. Yeah, I, I'd probably be responsible for a few of those, mostly <laughs> no, packed in good. private. It's been 29 years, yeah, it's been yeah, what have you learned, Richard, over those 20... Like, this is a business programme. It is a business. Yeah, like, you stand and rise, stand or fall on the bottom line because you have to you have to pay people. Well, I quite like that. I mean, definitely we were spoiled, not at the very beginning, because the very beginning was a huge risk. And we lost a lot of money. Yeah. And then the second year, we did the second year to pay for the first year, really. But during the second year, uh, a guy called David Ford, actually, who's now, I think, brand manager for Heineken UK, or maybe he's done very well anyway. And he was working with Murphy's in Cork. And he got on the phone to me and, and, and as the story goes, offered quite a substantial deal, which Guinness didn't believe and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it went on and we took the deal and then things began to make sense. And between that, I think the standard of the comedy and the fact we had a free pass really because there was no other festival. It kind of on. boosted, put into the stratosphere absolutely, absolutely. of and Bill comedy Murray, of at that coming. stage. Uh, Bill Murray showed up in the second year. So I would say from year three on, we didn't know how lucky we were really in a way because we had big, big audiences growing year on year. We had a lot of money and sponsorship, which allowed us to advertise. Uh, we had capacity. It was difficult, but capacity. And we also had acts. We had comedians who uh, didn't have the same distractions that they have now in terms of television opportunities or even other comedy festival opportunities. And it's worth reminding ourselves of the splash that it made because I can remember the excitement when the Guardian newspaper, that widely respected news brand, said that it was possibly the coolest festival in the world. In the world, yeah. They did say that, yeah. I, 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 and we still use that. Yeah. <laughs> they said it a long time ago. Yeah, um, but it had it has its own kind of personality and the comedy and the artistic choices involved in it are what's most important to you? Well, I think if you look at business in a way, when I look at a lot of the festivals that I go to or that I see or that I'm aware of, whether it's film, whether it's theatre, whether it's comedy, or whether it's a combination of all of those things as an arts festival, a lot of the bigger ones aren't the same kind of event or animal that they were when they were conceived. I mean, generally somebody conceives of something because they really love it. There's, they passion, love it. There's the a passion heart, there. There's a passion there. And then what tends to change all that is, guess what? Money. Mm. It's sponsorship, it's money, uh, it's consumerism, it's how people can use this brand to further what it is that they might want to sell. And therefore that becomes the thing that moves the dial forward for the festival. And I suppose I was always very determined that that wouldn't happen to our festival, certainly not to Cat Laughs. Um, and I think that's why we stopped or banned or didn't ever bring in any television. We didn't have any awards or any of that. So it was kind of run as an arts event that had commercial potential in the sense that the commercial potential was there, that a lot of the acts were very popular. And we had some sponsorship for sure, usually one big headline sponsor, um, which really helped us. But I don't think it ever changed the nature and the shape of the business as the proposition from the very beginning, it's, which is basically yeah, stand-up. It seems to me an interesting kind of view of a business whereby it's money, because you have to keep generating money and profit, but also it's the product and the outcome of it. So it's not just all about... Uh, that makes you run things in a different way, because m my understanding of the way you've operated is that you have to keep the creative bit pretty pure throughout. Well, I'm lucky because I I work as an agent and I make my money as an agent, so I've never really been motivated by money through the festivals that I've created. I've never been interested in that. To me, it's about how the festivals can work and what the agenda of the festival is. And for me, 
uh, you know, when I started the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival, I was curious because I, I didn't really, I was naive. I was kind of innocent. I didn't really know much about comedy, but I, I wanted to do something that was unusual that would be unusual in Kilkenny. Yourself so and Lynn were going to do a choral festival at one stage. <laughs> well, I think it was more Lynn's idea to do a choral festival. Um, <laughs> but be a gap there still. There could be a gap, and that would be very beautifully and elegantly and eloquently filled by Lynn, I would say. Yeah, uh, if you're uh, listening. <laughs> but, um, and I think for me, I'm very proud of the fact that, that, that the festival is still sort of has the same shape and feel to it that it did 29 years ago, which is basically somebody communicating their ideas through a microphone. Mm. Obviously, the context has changed, times have changed, the nature of comedy, the way in which comedy is connected and, um, and communicated has massively changed, of course. But ultimately, the shape of the festival hasn't changed. I mean, it's gone through different iterations, different times, but it's still the same thing that it was when it started out. And I think... I think part of that is that I've never really been interested in, and nor have the real, uh, uh, the, the other artistic directors that have come in uh, have really worked well to that brief. You know, mm. this is, we are running this. So keeping it fresh. Yeah, I think mm. so. Look, we're going to take a break and we'll be back after that talking some more to Richard Cook about the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival, which gets underway tomorrow. You can still get some tickets, but I was talking to Richard and they're limited enough, so don't dally. Get online, check out what's still available. We'll be talking some more about show tips after this with John Purcell The Bottom Line on KCLR Carlo Kilkenny KCLR KCLR indeed Richard Cook uh, the founder of the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival joins me gets underway tomorrow Richard we were talking during the break that humans are perhaps the only uh, species that actually laugh it is an amazing thing comedy isn't it yeah I think it's interesting in that it doesn't really you know you can go to an opera or a play uh, or a musical or a cinema a, a, a film and there's different things that can you can react to but mm. if, if a comedian's not working and you're not laughing it's not working and yeah. laughter's a reaction it's not an emotion and I think that therefore makes it very particular a comedian <laughs> has a very particular job to do and they approach it in very different ways but you know if people aren't laughing, it's not going And of course, the, of course well. the environment and the context is so important. And Kikenny has been an important backdrop against which to have, not against, but in which to have the, the festival. They like it. And equally, it's a compact space where you feel it's on. Yeah, I, I definitely think that for all the festivals that happen here, it's it's festival shaped. It's a really brilliant size. It's not too small. It's not too big. People get their bearings very quickly. And there's real, there's real comfort in that. I, I, I've always felt what I like and it's maybe just me and it's maybe speaks to my age. But what I, what I've always, <laughs> I've ever to go to Shiam Shakushli when I was, you know, living oh, wow, in Cove. It is a blast from the it past. It is a blast in the past. But basically you had a stage and you had a number of bands that would come on or uh, artists and singers and everybody would share that same experience. Whereas if you go to somewhere like Electric Picnic now, you literally have a barrage of choices at any point where you could be here, you could be there. People texting you saying you should be here because it's better than there. And you're thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> there is better than here. But what about being over there? And really what I'm interested in. It's like how in, I feel going into a clothes shop. <laughs> well, I could see that, John. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm interested in trying to provide um, choices of the same thing, so that the experience that people have is shared. And yeah, and it's been a back to the basics year. You're actually gone from the familiar to the challenging, which are maybe challenging is the yeah, wrong well, word. But this year, unknown, talk to us possibly, about the program. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that that for the last number of years, I think we just took a myself and Nisha Nan and Angela Squire. I suppose the three of us have thought quite a lot about it about how if we're not careful we'll just become another version of um, Ivy Gardens or the Galway Comedy Festival because it's become more competitive over the it's years it's become much more competitive you were the only one back in we the were, day yeah for many years we did a clear run of it 
Um, so I think what we looked at is this, well, what can we do? What did we do at the very beginning of the festival? What should we do? And I think in a way, one, one of the things we've talked a lot about is in the past maybe 10 years or 7 to 10 years or 3 to 5 years, we've kind of presented comedians that people are familiar with and that they feel comfortable and they want to see. Um, and I think this year we've provided enough of that, but we've basically done a fairly radical thing. We've brought 15 new comedians who've never been to Kilkenny before, never been to Ireland before, never gigged here. Fantastic. So I think that's kind of interesting. And, and um, so I suppose for the curious comedy goer, I'd like to think that... Um, that they will really get something from this festival. It's quite special. 45 seconds left. I know many of the shows are sold out. Give us some top tips. Thanks, John. Richard's top tips. <laughs> I don't know, actually. I, I think, uh, well, I would say that all the big shows, the big shows as in the ones in the Skyline and, and the ones in the in Langton's uh, ballroom are pretty well sold out. So I would encourage people to look at the smaller shows who are still... But there's no bad shows, really. No, I've no yet shows, to think of like a bad show I've been on, on a show, years. on a bill. Yeah, so yeah. I would say read the biographies. They're up there. Have a look. Take a chance. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah. it'll be really... I, I think people will be very pleasantly surprised. And try standards. it if you haven't been to a comedy show before... There's Go one, on, there's one act called Darren Harriet, uh, uh, who's uh, doing a solo show in Clears, and he is the first black comic actor to be nominated for the Edinburgh uh, Comedy Award uh, in the history of the awards, and he twice has been nominated. It's terrific. Um, so if you want one guy, I'd say Darren Harriet would be a good bet. Fantastic. Richard, thanks for joining us, and thanks on behalf of so many people in Kilkenny for bringing us the cat laughs over the years, onwards and upwards with a great event. That's unfortunately all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. Remember, if you have any comments or you'd like to contact us, The Bottom Line at kclaurin96fm.com. If you'd like to listen back to this or any of the other episodes, just search for The Bottom Line on KCLR on the Apple Store, Google Play or Spotify. Thanks to all our guests this week, to Maeve Deneen, Jimmy Sheehan, Austin Hughes and Richard Cook. Thanks to Deirdre Drummy who produces the show. Thanks most of all to you for listening. We'll be back again next Thursday, just after the news at six, with more stories for and about business. Until then, enjoy the good weather. Take in a show at the Cat Laughs. Look after yourself and each other. Stay tuned to KCLR and keep the faith. With John Purcell, The Bottom Line on KCLR.